evening, if you want to get out your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Mark. I'm going to be studying from Mark this evening, um, as I do every month until we're done with all 66 books of the Bible. We are overviewing uh, books, uh, and tonight we are going to do an overview of the Gospel of Mark. If you'll remember uh, from last week, or last month rather, uh, we went through the book of Matthew, and at the beginning of that, I kind of pointed out that each of the Gospels are different, and the reason for that, I think, is because there's a different purpose behind each of the four Gospels. Uh, just like we were to tell, uh, if we were to tell our biography to different people uh, in different situations, we might change which events we use, and we might tell different aspects of each event. So we have in these Gospels a different account of the, the same events that took place. If I were to talk, tell my life story to a group of children, I would tell it differently than to a group of adults. Uh, those who are family, I would tell them different information than if I were to broadcast it to the entire world. Uh, so we see as we study the Gospels, there's something very different about each one of them. And it's not, uh, they weren't given to us so that we would try to make them all fit together and work together and work out all the uh, seeming contradictions. That's not really uh, the goal of the writers, but it was to give us different uh, aspects of the same story, different reflections of uh, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done so that we can understand him a little bit better. And as we come to the book of Mark, I just... Uh, want to take a second to, to tell you how impressive this book is. Uh, this is not um, a very simple book uh, in some ways, and yet it's extremely simple in other ways. Uh, as he goes through and tells us about the life of Christ, it becomes very obvious uh, what he's trying to do and, and makes this gospel one of the best gospels for us to teach someone who is brand new to Scripture. Uh, this is a 16-chapter book, so it's the, the, the shortest of all the gospel accounts. Uh, and Mark did that on purpose, I think. Uh, in a Roman culture, which is, in this case, who I think this book was written to, uh, what, you, what you find in the Roman culture is a desire to have everything condensed, to get all the information in in a short amount of time. That was, that was valued in that culture, much like it's valued in our culture, right? If you watch... Uh, you know, YouTube videos or anything like that, somebody who drags on and on and on, what do we do? We just slide that, that video marker over to get to the part where we really want to know whatever it is. If we're fixing a car, we, we don't want to learn about the guy, we want to learn about how to fix that specific part. And we get there and we, we get that information. That is very much like the Roman culture and, and the way that they would handle things. They would, they would desire to have a, a high concentration of that information. And so as we open up the book of Mark, we see uh, not a lot of extra detail given. And, and in fact, Mark doesn't waste time uh, describing a lot, of, a lot of things. He just tells us what happens. He doesn't give us the intricate details, maybe like Matthew does, but he just tells us what happens. And we see in Mark that he actually explains, whenever he does take time to give us additional information, he's using the, the words carefully to explain to a Roman audience, what the Jewish implication is. A lot of times he's trying to help a Roman audience understand why these things would have been significant and, and why the Jewish audience or the Jewish people, as he's writing about Jesus and the Jewish society, 
we're doing these things and thinking these things. So um, that makes this book a little bit more helpful for us as, as we're trying to teach people who have no idea what the Jewish society is all about. And, and Mark actually goes through and describes a lot of that to us. Um, as we open up the book of Mark and we want to find out uh, the purpose of the book, what, what is his purpose in writing to the Roman audiences about Jesus, I think we find that purpose in the first few verses of this book. Uh, so let's start by looking at just the first few verses of this book. Uh, starting in verse 1, it says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That's fascinating words there. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. What is this book about? Well, this book is about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Think about that for a second. To be called the Son of God, what does that mean to a Roman? To talk about gospel, what does that mean in a Roman context? If you were a Roman, then you would know from every piece of uh, Roman coinage that you owned who the Romans considered to be the Son of God because on the coin it would have a picture of Caesar and it would have on that coin Son of God written on that coin. To say that someone is the Son of God is to say they are the emperor, that they are the king, they are the ruler over all the earth. They are God's anointed one and that's very much what the Roman people were told to believe about their emperor. And Mark starts his gospel by saying, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Is that not, you know, eye-catching? Like, whoa, wait a second. What is this about? What is going on here? At the very beginning, he says that. And gospel, that word gospel in a Roman context would be the good news that would be received about your emperor's conquests and how he has conquered the enemies uh, that, that you have as the Roman people. And so the gospel, the good news about the Son of God and is, is telling us about the defeat that, it, that has happened, that, that Jesus is the emperor supreme, the ruler over all the earth and that he is the one who has conquered and defeated our enemies. And that is very much what we find in the book of Isaiah. Notice he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah. Then he has a quote from Isaiah. That tells us that all of this information, all of this understanding about Jesus being the Son of God and Jesus being the one who is the Emperor Supreme, the one who is the King of all the land, the King of kings and Lord of lords, was foretold by God in the Old Testament. God predicted this, and he said that he would do this in the book of Isaiah. When you open up the book of Isaiah, you understand this information. In Isaiah 52, verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings great good news who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's what Isaiah was pointing to throughout much of the prophecy, is that God is going to set his anointed one 
on the throne and he will rule over all the kingdoms of men, all the kingdoms of this earth. And Mark's purpose at the beginning of this is to get that feeling across to all of his audience. The bold claim is being made at the beginning and now the rest of the book is going to tell us whether he can back that claim up, whether Jesus truly is the Son of God, whether he truly is the, the King of kings and the, the one who's been anointed by God as Isaiah the prophet foretold. Then Mark quotes Isaiah, but he also quotes Malachi. It's kind of a mashing together of two quotes, which is fascinating. But we see that commonly throughout the New Testament. The New Testament writers will mash together multiple quotes. We're not going to do a deep study of all that and take up all our time. Remember, we're going to go through the entire book of Mark. But I really want you to understand, whenever he says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, see that in the Roman context, right? The emperor is coming. I'm sending a messenger before me to, to, to prepare the way for this emperor to come to you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. You could just see a messenger going throughout all the land and telling everybody, get ready, get ready, the king's coming. And that, mes that messenger, as we'll see, is John the Baptist. And he jumps right in to John the Baptist in verse 4. But all of this, as you read it, resembles, as he mashes these two things together, they resemble what was depicted back in Exodus chapter 23 which is fascinating. It's not a quote of Exodus 23, but he mash, him mashing together Malachi 3 and Isaiah 40, verse 3, it resembles what was said back in Exodus 23. And I want to read that to you as well, real quick. It says, as, as, think about it, as Israel is about to leave and go into the promised land, God told them, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. There's a very apparent kind of typology that I think Mark might be referring to, though only really a Jewish audience would understand that maybe. Uh, but it's just fascinating to see the, the, the comparison between these. The idea, the picture is the same. God has done what he's promised. He's provided for you the Son of God, and that's the good news. And that Son of God has come, and He is going to defeat all of your enemies. Your enemies are God's enemies, and He will destroy them for you so long as you carefully obey the voice of this one who has come for you to be your king, the king of kings. So there's a very apparent you know, kind of typology or idea in Exodus 23 that I think Mark might be referring to, maybe not, but it kind of is, is interesting. And, and it helps us to kind of set our minds as we study this book to understand why Mark is going where he's going. Starting at verse 4, we just see a rush of information. What, what 
Matthew and Luke do is they, they go through genealogies and they tell you all about Jesus' birth and all, all, the, all kinds of information about the beginnings of Jesus. Luke has multiple chapters before we even get to the ministry of Jesus. And, and Jesus gets into it later in, in like the second or third chapter. So it takes a while for them to get to it. Mark jumps right in with a talk about John the Baptist baptizing Jesus and then immediately uh, Jesus uh, goes and he is tempted in the spirit and immediate, uh, tempted by, by Satan and then immediately he calls uh, disciples and he heals and, and everything throughout this text is you just highlight the idea of immediately. Immediately this happens. Immediately this happens. It's like he's just rushing through and, and everything that Jesus does immediately things happen whenever he says they happen or they happen whenever he submits to God or does something and that's showing us the power of God is being with Jesus so that everything he says and does uh, has an effect that happens instantaneously. It's unmistakably the result of God working through Jesus. God putting his stamp of approval on everything that Jesus does. Jesus is the Son of God. And that's, that's a statement that's being made. And notice the first miracle that we read about is in verse 21 of chapter 1. It's about a man with an unclean spirit uh, casting out a demon. The very first picture is Jesus casting out demons, defeating our spiritual enemies. That's where, that's where Mark starts with. And then he goes on to say he heals many and he, and he preaches the good news, and, and there's, there's multiple uh, descriptions of him healing, uh, paralytic, he forgives the man his sin, and, and then he calls uh, Levi, the, the, the tax collector. Think about it, if you're a Roman, you want to know about this tax, Roman, Jewish, but he's a tax collector for Rome. Him being accepted is a big deal uh, for the Gentiles to know that God is willing to welcome in sinners. Uh, and, and Levi is Matthew, who would have been considered a great sinner. So all of this information is given to us uh, as we get through chapter 2, verse 17. And then it transitions over to talking about how the Jewish people started questioning Jesus. They were wondering about why he's not fasting like everybody else and, and why he's not keeping the Sabbath according to the traditions of the Jews. And he's answering all of these questions and he's explaining why he is different from them and how he is, has come to establish something that is new, not to refresh what is old. Think about how exciting that would be as a Roman uh, listener to know that there's something that is new that has come. This is not going into Judaism, but it is coming into something that is entirely different from that. And Jesus makes it very clear that that's what he's doing. Um, as we go from chapter 4, verse 1, all the way through chapter 8, verse 26, we see a lot of ideas uh, and concepts. He gives the parables and helps explain the kingdom through all of these parables. It explains the kingdom, but it also kind of conceals the truth about the kingdom. We see him healing people and, and calming storms, that power that he has over even nature, uh, healing a man with a legion of demons inside of him, and, and once again pointing to that theme of he is the conqueror over our enemies. And then we read about him selecting the 12 disciples, uh, walking on water, uh, and, and refuting the, the teachings of the religious leaders. 
uh, that, that instead of focusing on traditions, they should be more focused on mercy and compassion. And then he demonstrates compassion by feeding thousands of people with very little food. So if you, as you look at all of this, you understand a little bit more about how he is a very cap- capable and powerful king. As the son of God, there's, there's no one like him. There's no, no king of earth who can do anything like, like he is able to do. And it would make a very strong point to that as we get through the first half of the book. Mark spends an entire half of his book getting this point across. Jesus is the powerful king that God has sent to earth and marked with his stamp of approval. When we get to chapter 8, verse 27... Uh, it takes a shift, much like in the book of Matthew, it kind of takes a shift. He mentions his crucifixion. He talks to them about how he is going to Jerusalem uh, in verse 30, 31 to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and how, uh, how the disciples didn't understand this. He reveals his primary mission is to suffer and die, which is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and we know that text. But the disciples never understood it. In the first section, Peter rebukes him in in chapter 8, verse uh, 31 through 33. In the second section, it says in verse 32, they did not understand what he was saying and they were afraid to ask him. After he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, they didn't want anything to do with with arguing with Jesus about this. And then the third section uh, kind of uh, wraps everything up and, and just... They don't say anything. We don't get any indication that they understand what Jesus is saying. Uh, they, don't, they don't get it. Why must he die? He's very obviously God's Messiah, God's king, and yet he keeps saying he has to die. Well, that idea, as we saw in the book of Matthew, is interconnected with his teachings on greatness. Just like in the book of Matthew, it interconnects, it, it, it meshes together the fact that he's, he's got to die in order to fulfill his mission. And he teaches them, unless you become a servant, you will not be the greatest in the kingdom. The first must be the slave of all. And he mentions this idea over and over again throughout this section. He's trying to teach his disciples and help them understand that true greatness is not about demonstrating power over everyone and and forcing everyone to do everything you want to do, but true power is found through serving other people. That's where true greatness is found. Now, if you're a Roman audience, that is a foreign concept to you. I mean, no king has demonstrated that, that mentality to the extent that Jesus does by giving his own life in service of mankind. And he describes all of that to everyone to help them to, to grasp the enormity of what he's about to do. And then we read about him doing the very thing he, he said he would do. Fulfilling Isaiah, doing all the things that God had planned for the king of kings to do. Uh, and, and as we go through from chapter 11 to chapter 12, we see 
him come into Jerusalem. We see him rebuke the religious leaders and they debate with him and they argue with him and he defeats them on every point, just like we saw in Matthew. And then he, he foretells the destruction of Jerusalem in chapter 13, just like he does in Matthew. It's a very similar account in so many ways. But the things that he talks about is not so much focused on the hypocrisy of the religious leaders as it is focused on how Jesus is wise and, and cunning and understanding of the true motives of men and the hearts of men. And he is able to conquer the wisdom of men with the wisdom that comes from God. And he's trying to get that point across throughout all of this, but it doesn't matter. As we know, chapters 14 and 15, we see the Jews plotting against Jesus uh, and then eventually resulting in his crucifixion. In chapter 15. But again we see. He rises from the dead. And that is. The gospel of Mark. In a nutshell. <laughs> Very fascinating. To see that. I don't know why this is doubled. I must have messed that up. So. But there's something else that's really interesting about this book. And so before we. We jump into what does it mean. And we jump into application of this book. I want us to spend just a moment and think about what's at the end of this book. If you have a newer translation, uh, if you go to the very end in chapter 16, you'll probably see some kind of demarcation. Uh, as you get to chapter 16, verse 8, uh, we read about those women coming to the tomb. And verse 8, it says, They went out after being told, He's not here, He's risen from the dead, and He's going before you to Galilee. It says, and they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And that's verse 8, okay? Now, mine says, some of the earliest manuscript, manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20. It's fascinating. Uh, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this section. Your translation may say, um, just two manuscripts do not include this section. Uh, very fascinating. I know I, I've got a resource that really, I think, goes through and explains all of this much better than I could, especially in the midst of a sermon that overviews the book of Mark. Um, but what I've learned is there are five alternate endings that are found throughout the, the different manuscripts of the book of Mark. Uh, five different endings. And, and so what's that about? <laughs> Why are there five different endings? Well, if you were a writer and you were recording all these things that, that Mark had written and you were just taking uh, and, and writing it all verbatim, what's more likely? Is it more likely that you would see what's in verse 8 and think that can't be the end? And add your own ending. Maybe one of, maybe five different people decided to do that in, on five different occasions. Or is it more likely that Mark wrote all of one of these endings and at some point people lost it and then maybe uh, tried to add it back in according to memory or, or something like that. Like that's, that's the fight that you have to have in order to try to decide whether or not this section is matching with and, and is a part of what is in 
the actual authentic writings of Mark. Now, if you're, if you're a, a scholar and if you're one who tries to decide all of these things, the earliest manuscripts would hold the most weight. In other words, the, the, the manuscripts that are the closest to the author's original date of writing hold way more weight than all the rest of the manuscripts. But there's an issue because there's an enormous amount of manuscripts that have different endings, and there's only two manuscripts that have no ending. But if you add to that all of the writings of the church fathers, uh, and you, you consider all of their writings about the book of Mark, which you can restore almost all, all, of the old, all of the New Testament in just their writings, as they refer to those writings and they talk about them, you don't find in the majority of those writings any reference to any of those endings. It seems as though Mark ended with verse 8. It's fascinating. I'll tell you what I think about it and understand this is Casey's understanding and it's not gospel. I could be wrong about this. You could have a different opinion than me. It's perfectly fine. But if you remember the, the first of this book, it, it's about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It's about the beginning of it. And so as you go to verse 8 and you read, uh, trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. That's kind of a cliffhanger to me. That's kind of a, there's something more that, that should be said about this. And it kind of leaves room for the idea that maybe Mark wrote the rest of the story in another volume. Uh, very well could have been that that's the case. Um, and one of the best arguments against a lot of this additional stuff here is uh, in verse 9, it, it once again describes Mary Magdalene. Mary Magdalene was already described earlier in verse 1. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother, I mean, she's already talked about. So to talk about her again, now when he rose, I mean, it's kind of like a new starting uh, in the middle of a discussion, in the middle of a story, it kind of starts it over in verse 9. And then to describe who Mary Magdalene is at this point doesn't really make a lot of sense. You add to that the idea uh, here that, that says the, the signs that follow believers is that they'll drink poison, that they'll uh, be bitten by snakes and, and things like that. There's some things about this that are kind of questionable about the, the, the second half of Mark. Uh, so to say that it ends in verse 8 is not necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily going to take away much from Scripture. I mean, you've got uh, he who believes and baptized is not saved or, or, or will be saved is, is in this verse. And we like to use that, right? But we've got that in plenty of other texts to know that you believe and you're baptized, you're saved. We don't have to have this text in Mark 16 to know that. So whether you believe that it's authentic or not, uh, doesn't really affect our, our faith, doesn't really affect uh, our understanding about uh, the greatness of this book. Uh, so do your own research, study it. If you need a resource, if you're, you're interested in this, I'll send you a link, email me. I'll, I'll be happy to send it to you. But this is a fascinating section of all the New Testament. This is, this is the most debated section of all the manuscript uh, differences. This is the most debated of all of them. Uh, and so it's, it's fine if we have different opinions about this, but I think it, it it's perfectly fine to end in verse 8 and to think this is just the beginning of, of what he did. 
Uh, he was raised from the dead. That says he is the Son of God, and that's enough. We don't have to read about his disciples receiving the Holy Spirit and, and them going and, and creating the church or like Matthew ended, go therefore and make disciples in all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We don't have to read that if Mark's purpose is not that. And again, it's obvious he's trying to create a shorter version of all that Jesus did for a Roman audience. So it's fine, I think, for him to end that way. All right, that's enough of that. So what do we learn? I hope I didn't distract you too much with that. That's a complete rabbit trail, I know. Uh, but I found it fascinating, and I enjoyed studying it. So, uh, so what do we learn from this book? Mark reveals Jesus as the new king. He is the one who has power. He is the one who has control of everything. And God has marked him with his stamp of approval. And what does he do with that power? He defeats our enemies. That's who Jesus is. What a statement. Wow. Jesus is worthy of what we read in verse 8, the response of those women. Trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Uh, in that case, obviously, they were afraid because, what, where is he? You know, what's, what's going on? They, they, didn't, they didn't want to get in trouble, but trembling and astonishment had seized them. That is what we should feel as we read through the book of Mark. That is what everyone should feel as they read through the book of Mark and they learn about how powerful Jesus is and how Jesus has complete control over everything. He is very obviously the Son of God, the Anointed One, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so as we think about how this book helps us and what we need to be doing with this information, I want you to ask yourself, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is God's anointed one, the one who has control and power? And do you believe that he has done all of these things to show compassion even to you and grant you all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places? You know, Jesus doesn't need you. <laughs> he was perfectly fine up in heaven. He was, he was perfect in every way. He didn't need us. But he wanted us, and he knew that we needed him. It's an amazing story to learn about all that Jesus has done for us. And what's really, really sad about this is oftentimes we don't understand how much we need him. We need him every day. We need him all the time. And many of us, unfortunately, get so distracted with the cares of this world and the things that are going on around us that we tend to have like a spiritual amnesia. We forget about him. And I would say that Mark's gospel is the perfect resource for us to remember. It's the perfect resource for us to remember how powerful our king is and what he is able to accomplish for us in our lives. And as we said with Mark, if, or with Matthew, the, the resource of Matthew, I think, is really toward those who are religious and, and who are really 
overly focused on themselves and their works and their own righteousness and they're not really compassionate about anybody else. Like Matthew hits the nail on the head in, in talking to the Jewish audience, the extremely religious audience. Well, Mark is like the other part of this, the other side of this. It's the perfect resource for us to go to those who are unchurched, those who are lost, and just read with them that they've never learned who Jesus is. They've never understood what he's like to just read with them and let them be blown away by how amazing he is. Heard of uh, a preacher friend of mine uh, studying with a woman for six months, and he couldn't get her to, to believe or accept anything he's saying. It all was just hogwash to her. And he opened up, he got fed up. He's like, I got to try something new. He opened up the book of Mark, and they just read five chapters of the book of Mark. And by the end of it, she's crying. And she's ready to accept who Jesus is. That's the way this book is. That's how powerful it is. It's a wonderful resource for us to go out and to reach those who have no idea who Jesus is and to just smack them upside the head with this wonderful news and blow their minds to know Jesus is the one true, still living Son of God who is able to save us and who wants to save us. So if you're here tonight and you've not accepted him as your Savior, if you've not received the blessings that he wants to offer you, we want to help you. If there's some way that we can help you, we want to help you. Uh, and if you're here tonight and you're a follower of God, I hope that this lesson has been helpful to remind you about how wonderful he is, and I hope it will be a resource to you in the future. If you have any need tonight, will you please come forward as we stand and as we sing?